Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. Exceptional performance is a product of talent that gets cultivated, right? You don't just rest on, on the talent that's in the role. That's where somebody who has the right talent and you throw investment of skill and knowledge and experience, they gain that and they hold it and they use it masterfully. I would tell you that preparation on a miscast situation reveals the fact that the person lacks the talent because their investment in preparation doesn't stick. And one of the clues to talent is the rapid learning with near perfection in the retention. Can they take a learning? This is where when you have a talented person and you coach them, they keep flying. They, they, they take off. They go to, to new bounds. This is Dave Oakley, CEO of Lead Different, a consultancy that coaches leaders and organization on how to use the great work of Jim Collins to go from good to great. And I love when I have a guest come back to the show because the conversation just gets stronger and better. And last time Dave was on the show, we dived into the concept of first who, then what, from the famous book, Good to Great, also by Jim Collins. And our vision for this conversation was to go a bit deeper to help leaders to get some practical tools to help them manage one of their biggest challenges right now, attracting and retaining their talent. And Dave takes us on a journey on how we can get talent right by using the talent matrix and what we can do to build a great company by mastering the who before anything else. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, which is packed with more Maverick insight, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Now grab notebook. There are some super golden insights and nuggets in this conversation that will make you reflect on how you approach talent. Enjoy. I'm always excited when uh, I get the opportunity to uh, get people back on the show to talk about either an involvement of what we already discussed or something totally new. And I think we're going to have both things happening today. And uh, we're going to be talking about this famous book I talk a lot about that's called Good to Great, which many, many, many leaders, as Dave said, uh, that's back at the show the, just before we start like many many you know CEOs or people have been on MBA programs or any other kind of leadership training through their life have been reading this book and then they get to this space of you know wilderness where they say yeah I really want to do this I really want to face the brutal facts I really want to get the right people on the bus I really want to do level 5 leadership but how how the hell do I actually take this to practical application in the real world 
And then there was another interesting part that we actually, because we, we came back from our previous conversation where we talked about first who, then what. And I think we, we, we're doing an extension of this today, but I think we're doing it under the umbrella. And that's what, what I was just talking with Dave about before we started was that there's really all this, you know, crazy uncertainty going on. And it's just like one layer after the other. It's not even by quarter or by months. It's by day by day, depending on what industry you're in. There's these things happening that's totally out of your control. Um, but actually, how do we actually have an organization that is ready for that? And many of these uh, good to great company, they almost thrived in uncertainty. And they became stronger as they came out of that. And uh, and it was not just once, it was twice, it was decades of challenge they went through. So so we're probably also going to touch a bit on that because I think that's really relevant compared to what's going on in the world. With that long intro, welcome back to the show, Dave. It's an, uh, absolutely incredible to have you back here to discuss uh, good to great and also the wider work of Jim Collins and Morton Hansen, for that sake. Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's, it's a pleasure to be back on your uh, podcast. And uh, obviously, as you mentioned, these uh, principles, these challenges that all leaders are facing, uh, they haven't gotten easier and they, they won't over time. So how do we take the learning uh, that Collins and his researchers uh, developed for us in this whole body of work and how do we put it into practice? That's, there's a little bit of uh, staring into the fog. You know, like you said, the, the leaders that I meet identify with the principles Sometimes they try to piecemeal them. They don't know how to thread them all together and eat or, or know where to start. How do you cultivate level five leadership? How do you first who? This is really the mission that I've been on since I started reading it because I had those questions myself. I was you know, leading a, a pretty large business that needed to improve and we connected with the principles, but then we said, okay, how do we do this? And we started to put together puzzle pieces and that's really what's evolved into my practice today. I do that full time. And it's grown into being a combination of working with leadership teams in that sort of context. But it's evolved a lot, um, as we were talking about earlier, into a lot of people seeking me out for leadership coaching. There's a lot of leaders that will go, how do I cultivate uh, my potential to become a level five so that we can navigate all this turbulence and uh, establish a great company, great organization? Yeah, and, and that's super interesting that actually people has been reaching out to, to you because you have done something that I think that's really incredible. You have actually, you know, hacked some of these principles, you can say, because there's a lot of research behind to prove them. But what you have found is practical tools to do this. And it would be interesting just from last time we talked a bit about, you know, uh, first who then what maybe just recap your your own understanding of first who then what and then also about you know why why lots of people want to talk specifically about that and then we're also going to be talking about you know you created something called the talent matrix you use in, in your practice i want to say that again collins and his team came up with these brilliant findings and you'll see reference in all the works where he'll talk about, well, there's black boxes that they cracked open to answer the big question, can a good company become great? If so, how? Uh, they left behind a lot of black boxes, like how to cultivate level five leadership. How do I uh, practice first who? That's really been my mission is to crack open those black boxes and create 
uh, an actionable path. And we'll talk, like you said, the talent matrix is such an important cornerstone of how we uh, teach people to apply first too. But first, the idea that who questions come first uh, is, is something that a leader has to really come to grips with because the way to have a great company uh, is to make sure that you have those right people in the right seats where the organization doesn't need tight management because with the right people in the right seats, you can have freedom and responsibility. The organization can be faster. More things happen at the point of attack. There's a better chance to surface and resolve difficult issues. All these things that are so important to performing at a high level, getting results and sustaining those. You, you mentioned earlier that you know, dealing with setbacks and turbulence. Well, with the right people in the right seats, they're more apt to raise those issues very, very quickly and not only uh, you know, raise the flag, but have great answers. They may actually solve some of the most important issues before they even get to the top leader's desk. And that's, that's the definition of having the right people so that you can have the speed Right. When you settle on people and you don't hold a high standard of the right people, then you have to get into things like command and control and bureaucracy. And we all know that those are the things, those are never the earmark of a company that's going to have great and lasting results. Right? Nobody goes, oh boy, I want to go work there because it's really bureaucratic and it's tops down leadership. But yet we find ourselves in that because we haven't stayed disciplined as leaders to go, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to make sure that I have the right people in all the seats. You know, high 90% is the, the benchmark that Colin sets for us to have the opportunity to be great. Right? You have to have 90% plus of the right people in the right seats. And almost everybody goes, oh, of course, I'm, I don't do anything but hire the right people. Here's the big distinction. And some people miss this when they read the book. Is the right person is more about who they are than what they know. It's more about character traits and innate talents than it is knowledge, skill, and experience. As you were saying that, I was almost thinking about, you said the word, um, a word I last couple of months become very interested in, it's called responsibility. You know, like um, I think a lot of companies um, I meet, a lot of leaders I meet with, they, they almost feel like when they have delegated something, they don't have 100% responsibility for more on, on the same employees that they have a job description means they don't have a, you know, they have 100% responsibility for the job description, but not for the wider company in itself and its health. And actually what's very interesting, we look at good to great companies and also a piece of work we're doing at the moment, you see these, you know, companies where, you know, responsibility, as I call it, that word or ownership. There's like an ownership culture. We're all in it together and we escalate challenges quicker. We do, there's not like an ego that stands in the way. There's not a job description. We're all in it together. And you can see there's this openness and transparency in the organization. And that's because they have been be able to build a company, I guess, as you said, with 90% of the people that's on board at that present moment are the right people. So therefore they can have that openness, transparency. Some of them have, total openness around numbers it could be other things but numbers is a very you know common thing you see in these companies that everybody knows the health the business side yeah and I, I think uh, it's important that to be able to get this right the leader has to make the shift from saying the numbers are the most important thing and the thing that we focus on and so 
the idea of discipline is is putting discipline around making sure those things get accomplished versus going, you know, if I get the right people in the right seats, they're already self-motivated. They're already exceptional fits to the task I've given them. So I don't have to micromanage them and the results will come. Crossing that bridge to trust that 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 is the way that great organizations work is foundational. So the idea of if you want to have a great culture where you get the most out of the talent that you have, you got to look in the mirror as a leader and go, who's responsible for creating that kind of culture that can perform that way naturally without a lot of oversight, without just, you know, accountability being this thing that we impose or discipline being that we impose. The right people are self-disciplined. When you start settling and you get on a slippery slope where you're just trying to staff jobs and you don't, you the leader loses their discipline, that's when your culture starts to get watered down and it starts to slow down and your ability to get results uh, it really gets compromised. So uh, one of the things that's really dawned on me, Michael, as we, you know, as I've been working with so many leaders with these principles is, you know, Collins has a lot of different concepts. You know, I think there's something like 12 that he points out and there's more than that. Uh, and people go, wow, there's so many different things that I need to master. I'll tell you, as I've studied more and more of them, almost all of them come right back to leadership discipline. Are you disciplined enough to hold out for the right people and find the right people or find the way to get enough of the right people versus being undisciplined and settling for people, right? Are you disciplined enough to give people the, uh, the direction and the support and focus on outcomes so that they have authority to act at the lowest level? That's a leadership discipline thing. And almost every principle you walk through, it comes back to if you're able to do that, it's because the leadership uh, is, is disciplined in their mindset, not that they impose discipline on the organization. I don't know if that, any of that makes sense. But that's a connection I've seen that threads through all of the principles. But I think also that what you're saying there is like as a leader, the, the discipline the organization shows is the reflection of your discipline and how you practice it on yourself and keep people. Because what I've noticed in really great performing organization is they uh, like an example. I think this is a great example. They impose deadlines on things but not on human deadlines because you can still raise a, a hand or red flag as Jim Collins said, it's not possible for me to do this. I committed to something that's above what I can do right now. And there will be, of course, uh, a way around that deadline, but they have deadlines on all things they work on. And they have this discipline around focusing really on the 20% that gives 80 all the time, really on the things that matters. So therefore they avoid, you know, lots of times they avoid, you know, they're not perfect, but burnouts, uh, stress, working on projects that should never have been started because they really try to define these things, definitely in the top of the leadership. What is the really that's going to make us look successful, successful and how does the future look? So they have a very clear vision they often have created together with the staff. So they already know that this is the vision. It's communicated. It's been created in collab with them in some kind of way. And therefore, the discipline will be very high. And this is typical the leaders I see that's very disciplined. They're very disciplined with these, you know, untangible leadership disciplines as they are. Vision, setting deadlines, coaching people, these things. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Uh, and getting back to the right people, right? The, the, the ability to have that direction that you're talking about, Michael, come out of shared understanding. It's only possible, again, when you, you've gone to the trouble to have the right people in the right seats, right? That's when you're able to have uh, the vision or where we drive the bus be a product of something that the leader does through leading with questions. Where should we drive this bus? It comes from reflecting and understanding, you know, what the organization can be best at, uh, what we're passionate about, right? And what drives our economic engine. When you have the right people, you can have that conversation intelligently. And the vision is, is emerges from a shared understanding versus some, you know, brilliant idea of the leader. Because when the leader sets the direction out of their own ego or their own idea and not out of the shared. Now we get into, I've got to convince everybody that this is the right way for the, the bus to go. And that's why so many of these great strategies or visions that leaders have, they struggle to get traction on them. Where again, go back and put who questions first. When I go to the trouble, get the right people in the right seats and they're, they feel responsible and empowered or it's safe to bring up the big issues, we start dealing with those we create this opportunity to say, wow, we can be great at these things. And these are the things that drive our economic engine. And this is what we're all passionate about. That's that's how this idea of a strategy called the hedgehog comes out of the necessity of having the right people in the right seats. Now, one of the things is I've been working with leaders on this idea of how do I evaluate my people? And what's the difference between right seat and, and right person, right? And for me, it boils down to the right seat is really the product of that talent, right? It's does the work uh, that you're assigning somebody that's of that seat, does it draw on that person's natural strengths? Are they, you know, Olympic caliber fit to that seat? That's where the idea of we got to make sure we get tuned into talent versus knowledge, skill and experience for the right seat. Now, when we talk about whether they belong on the bus or not, that's where character and values comes in, right? These are two things, talent and character, that are, you know, almost unchangeable in people, right? People don't change that much in these inherent areas. And so whether or not somebody belongs on your bus, regardless if they're uber talented, right, is a product of their character and their values. Do they bring something and, you know, become a force multiplier on the culture that you want, or do they detract from it, right? Big, big decisions that leaders struggle with all the time is this having this uber talented, high producer that is toxic, right? And, and we call that, in, in a, as we evaluate people in the talent matrix, that's a dilemma. Somebody who delivers exceptional results, but they're toxic, right? That person, if if we can't be disciplined and give them that feedback and not accept that behavior as just the way we get the results, then that person won't ever respond to it. If we allow that person to stay in place, then our culture breaks down. It becomes, you know, our core values don't mean anything. So if they don't respond in a favorable way, they don't get a seat on the bus. They have to go find a bus where uh, those character traits and values you know, kind of match up. So again, that's a that's a huge part of leadership discipline. Do you have the discipline to take, you know, a dilemma high performer and manage that properly?
Yeah, uh, I can remember because I really got that out of um, good to great as one of the third time I read this book as I was promoted into be responsible for a whole organization and therefore I was suddenly not, I was managing not a, a team for per se, I was managing a group of leaders. And I had this very high performing uh, GM of a place and they were doing really, really well. There was nothing in the numbers you could complain about, but there was definitely, when you started talking with the staff, it was definitely not uh, the way we saw a place. It was definitely top down, a ruler more than a, a coach. And, uh, and I believe it was just about a tipping point where that would go really wrong. And we would have an exodus of great people which would mean that that place would suddenly not be performing that well. And how do you confront, you know, you've been just come into a job and uh, the, the two owners have put you in that job and you tell them uh, the best performing place on numbers, we need to deal with that place because it's going to crumble in a second. And uh, first of all, convincing them about that and actually finding evidence for this is what we need to do. It's very hard. And I actually didn't stop it in time. It started actually to crack the house, but I knew what I needed to do. I needed to go in and put some ultimatums in place because I I actually didn't believe that the person could change that quickly in behaviors, but I actually gave him an opportunity somewhere else where he could use his skill set. And, uh, and it didn't go well uh, because we got in too late and, um, and you were working with a very toxic situation and uh and it took a long time to come back from and get this place back and trust back in that group of people who worked in that specific team and, and unit so um it's so so key to get in straight away when you get that feeling of toxic leadership or a ruler slash dictator kind of things going on because it's just a question about time before the whole card house collapse yeah and that ability to have that kind of difficult conversation is is really a, a core competence of great leaders, right? And uh, often the higher up you get, the less anybody's really developed either that skill or the comfort or the knowledge that despite the fact that it's difficult, that I have to do that, I have to engage on that and then be disciplined. Think of all those dominoes that have to happen for it to happen in a timely manner, and for it to be done well and respectful and have a productive outcome. And that productive outcome is really just making clear to that person that despite their great results or that site, despite the great results, that the behaviors are unacceptable and they need to be owned and changed or there's a consequence, right? To be able to be that disciplined and go through that. There's a lot of uh, technique that leaders have to develop to be able to have those kind of difficult conversations. And those same techniques are important for leaders to be able to establish the kind of culture that can have debate and dialogue that's not debate to win, that's debate and dialogue that you need to uh, be able to get to a productive and aligned outcome, you know, shared understanding out of places where we violently disagree. That's a leadership competence that is essential for a company to navigate all this turbulence that we've been talking about. But it definitely, when we talk about first who, being able to not only recognize that that dilemma 
has to be dealt with, but then to do it effectively is critical. And that's where I spend a lot of time with leaders because there's just so few have had, you know, any kind of training or any kind of reps on how to do that. And so they're, it's, we, they tend to either avoid them or they handle them and handle them poorly. And uh, neither one of those is a good outcome. So, Yeah, and I think especially in these times where, you know, there's so much else going on. We talked about the uncertainty in the world or just in business, but also in people's life. The start, you know, it's, it's a huge impact on people's lives. So therefore, being able to manage these situations and being able to actually, you know, be ready for having difficult conversations, but they will come as people get freshels and you cannot just turn up uh, as a machine at work and, you know, leave all the human stuff on, on the other side. It could also be that, that you need to help them them navigate through or help to put a, take a bit off their plate or maybe they need to get stretched a bit more so you put more on their plates. But one of the things I really, you know, as we were preparing for this and one of the things I really think I got right in the end when I was starting rolling out the practice good to break was like finding the right people, the whole hiring and recruitment setup we talked about last time. How do you look for the right traits, you know, values? It's not skills you're looking for. You can train for skills. Um, was that kind of thing where it was a bit more, you know, wilderness for me? How do I actually already with the existing people I have if I can't promote them, how do I actually get the best potential and performance out of them? And how do I have these conversations with them without making them believe there's not a future for them? Because sometimes there's just not, it's not always just about progressing. It's also developing in your current role. But often what you see is that people are so focused on these moves they can make in an organization in up to a new role that has a new title. But instead of thinking about actually how can I actually become better at what I'm doing. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot in that uh, point, Michael, that, that, you know, first two can leave you with the impression that I get the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats and the wrong people off, and then I'm done. First two is a full cycle. And you, you were ticking through that. It's not only getting the right people in the right seats, wrong people off, it's about how throughout their, uh, their time with us do I develop them and make sure that the, the conditions for all of my talent allow for the highest individual and collective success, right? That's when I'm leading is when I can have the right talent and I unlock their full potential against the important things we need to do. And having the ability to have uh, a set of routines and actually the the, the mindset to do that and a way to do that is so critical. That's bringing first two to life. It's a full cycle uh, process. And that's where, you know, as uh, my teams first got excited about uh, good to great and we instantly ran into first two and said, well, how do we get the right people? And now it's, it's a matter of talent and character. How, how the heck do we do that? We've been doing knowledge, skill, and experience for so long how do we get at uh, the idea of talent and character? And this is where, you know, through some trial and error and, and a lot of soul searching, we uh, came up with this thing that we call the talent matrix now. And it's there's nothing, you know, brilliant about the talent matrix when you look at it. It's But it's the understanding that it helps you create 
It's the dialogue that it uh, fosters uh, through applying it that that's the magic. And so we took um, a talent matrix that is, it's a nine box uh, grid that it's often used for succession planning, almost exclusively for leadership where once a year, the HR manager and, um, you know, the, the leaders of the organization get together and they put people in individual boxes to go, who, who might be the best leaders for succession planning? And it's a once a year thing. It's, and, you know, some people do it really well, uh, but others sort of pencil whip it. And we said, you know, there's a really interesting thing about these nine boxes is that on the x-axis, there's sort of uh, moving from low to high, there's performance, which is obviously important for us to understand what are the results and outcomes that you want uh, a person to have. And then on the y-axis, they, they always had low, medium, and high potential. And we said, what is potential? And, uh, you know, again, these were always leadership focused. And we said, what if you took that, knowing that talent is role specific, right? That everybody has talent and they're going to get the best results by being in the right seat on the bus. And that every seat on the bus, right, benefits by, from having, you know, exceptional fit in the talent. Then we've got to go each of these talent matrices you kind of develop role by role. So we started to look at that and go, how do we adapt this tool that's you know, used very infrequently and only for leadership? How do we put that where we can tease out this idea of fit? And uh, that that is something that we invested a lot of time in. And so we do this by you take an individual role and you define what are, and we, we contrast two groups of people. The high potential, the per the best we've ever seen. This, the talent matrix, is about an absolute scale. We're not grading on a curve. We're looking for the best you've ever seen in that role, and it could be, you know, half of Michael and half of Dave, right? Maybe maybe it's some combination of the two of us. If you could put those together, wow, you'd have the best project manager in the history of project management, right? So we create that vision of that's a high potential, and then we also consider the opposite of that which is in the lower left where performance is low and fit is low. We call that a miscast situation. You know, Dave got promoted into a role he doesn't fit well. And, you know, he's just going to struggle to get average results, let alone be productive, right, and, or excel. So we contrast those two and we say, okay, let's start with what are the performance results, the measurable results, and the outcomes that would define the greatest performance we've ever seen. And that sort of pins the the corner of the hypo. And talent, then, well, what is the talent that leads to those kind of results? And, you know, we looked at Myers-Briggs, at DISC, at Strengths Finders, and you talk about staring into the fog, going, you know, is it a combination of tenacity and curiosity and woo that creates that result? I mean, it's, there's no way to connect those dots. At least we couldn't figure it out. It seemed very abstract. And uh, I forget who had the observation, but it was really, really clever to go, you know, you recognize talent when you watch somebody. When you see, you, you recognize talent when somebody does their behavior is productively applied to something important and challenging and they do it well, you go, that's talent. And so we started to go, let's take each of the results and outcomes and go, 
what are the behaviors you would observe the best doing that make them stand out to get these exceptional results? Call those enabling behaviors. So that's the proxy we use when we define a role and define a talent. And then on the flip side, uh, think about it. The, the miscast, we have the, the poorer results or outcomes of, with their struggle, and we link that to limiting behaviors. You know, they, and, and these always, Michael, they, they show up when people run into unscripted situations, right? Something that we couldn't boil down into a, a you know, a procedure, right? They're always going to happen. This is part of managing in a turbulent environment. Do I always wait, have the person wait when they run into something they haven't seen? Well, the best know how to improv when they've not seen something and they get a stellar result. The miscast runs into the same improvisational moment and they do something cringeworthy, right? And that's the difference, right? And that that's how we got to this place of get together, define a role, define a talent with defining the results and outcomes and then understanding the behaviors that we're looking for. And now we can start to say, does somebody fit that seat at an exceptional level? Does that make sense? There's a lot to that. Yeah, there's a lot to that. But what I really got is also like when you, you said impro, because we all, we all know that feeling in our life where something happens that for other people would be an absolute catastrophe to manage or deal with the situation. It's your moment. You just scrap that. You are in flow straight away. You know what to do. You know how to deal with the stakeholders. You know what questions to ask. You know what comes first. You very quickly get organized uh, in your head what needs to happen. And I almost like it's and people say, well, it's a talent, but it's also what you worked on in your career, because I always believe you you're never done. You're always preparing. You're always preparing. You're never done. Even if you become the CEO or the chairman or whatever, you're just preparing for the next things that hit you and you have to keep on training. And I think you said that. And I think uh, Stephen R. Corey has a beautiful analogy of uh, uh, um, what do you call it? He called it a uh, strength. No, what do you call it? He called it uh, strength the sore or he has some kind of analogy about that. If you want to chop down a tree, you, you have much better spend seven hours on actually getting the, the, the saw sharp before you start cutting down the tree. And that's what these people do, I think. Uh, that's why they're talent, because they keep on stretching for that better. It doesn't mean they are top performing every day. So same like Olympic gold medals. How many times do they show up during their careers? Maybe two or three times to win a medal? But they are just preparing all the time. It's not about this crazy results all the time. It's actually about that preparation. That's talent, in my view, that you are constantly trying to get better. And of course, you can master the responsibility you are you're within, and you can get some above average results. You know. Yeah, I would uh, I would add something to that, Michael. That may may put a side spin on what you just said. The difference for me, because I do agree with you that uh, you know. Exceptional performance is a product of talent that gets cultivated, right? That you, you, you don't just rest on, on the talent that's in the role. You actually keep working to build. That's where somebody who has the right talent and you throw investment of skill, knowledge, and experience, they gain that and they hold it and they use it masterfully. I would tell you that preparation on a miscast situation reveals the fact that the person lacks the talent because the, their investment in preparation doesn't stick, right? And one of the clues to talent or the is 
the rapid learning and with near perfection in the retention, right? Can they take a learning? This is where when you have a talented person and you coach them, they keep flying. They, they, they take off. They go to, to new bounds. Coaching a miscast, you get trapped in this cycle of I coach somebody to get an acceptable result. And then when the coaching's, you know, when you step away, they start to fade. They can't sustain it. And then you coach the same thing and you do it over and over again. And you find yourself investing time that doesn't have a, a great payoff. And that's a big clue to, to talent. And that's where, you know, the idea again uh, of let me promote the best engineer into the leadership role and then coaching is going to fill that gap. If they don't have the requisite leadership talents, you'll coach and coach and coach them on the things that you need them to do and, and uh, people skills and managing talent and getting performance out of people. And it will be frustrating for that individual. Their team will not thrive. And you're again, you're going to be investing that time over and over again in the same things where somebody who has that talent, you start giving them investments and they, they give you multiples on the return. I hope that makes sense. That's a big difference between somebody who's talented and somebody who maybe doesn't fit that role as well. But I guess also sometimes the people that says yes to this role, they, you know, of course they shouldn't have been offered it if you've done your assessment correctly. But if you, you will never say no to a promotion because there's pay raise involved in it. There's a profile, there's career. And, and I, I, I've known many people uh, through my career I've talked with that said that I was so glad when they finally either got we put actually got away from a director job and actually came down to become a senior manager again or became a product specialist and also you know relieved and they because they loved the, the company and they loved the product but just that director responsibility they were just never ever they never wanted that they wanted to pay and if sometimes when they then move down, I move people down myself and then they've been allowed to keep the pay and said, but now you're then 100% responsible for this. And therefore, you know, we will not, you know, chop your pay because I will not be, you know, reasonable in a way, uh, because you still have a huge responsibility for something else. That doesn't mean you need to manage a lot of people or a lot of clients. Or, but I've seen so many times people been put in that position because you think that's the only way I can give them more salary or give them status in the organization. Yeah, that's a form of miscasting that is, uh, you know, so common. It's practically a sport, right? It, the, where we, we solve that compensation issue that way where, you know, we're asking that person to bring their weaknesses on center stage. And like you mentioned, you know, that they may be in that role for a very, very long time if, if we're not tuned into the fact that that's a bad fit. And when they find themselves out of that role, you feel that relief because they go, finally, I can get back to something that I'm exceptional at. Where, again, another clue to talent is, does somebody find in, intrinsic motivation in the duties of the role and especially the difficult parts of it, right? So they not only recognize the difficult parts of the role, but they don't hesitate to take them on and they do them well. Another clue to talent. And these are all things that we, again, start to gain by using this talent matrix because we start to look at the role in these enabling behaviors and, and talent in the context of real people and how they get things done. How do they get results or can they get results? When we start to work with this as an ongoing routine, 
right? Managers all start to now gain a clearer understanding, not only on the same page about what performance means, but they get a clearer understanding of who actually fits these roles exceptionally well so that we can have, you know, higher performing teams. When we talk about leadership roles, that is a whole different set of uh, talents that get factored into. It's not any longer just your subject matter expertise, right? You may be the best, you know, engineer on the planet. You may be the best marketing person, but we want to avoid giving you, putting you in that leadership role if you don't have the inherent talent to do it, because that is going to be stressful for you. It's anxiety or you'll avoid just doing the tasks that are important. So those things get undone and it's not lost on anybody. The fact that, you know, Dave's a, a, you know, a marketing genius, but boy, he doesn't do anything with his people. He doesn't build a team. Right. And you know, the, you can get by with that. So many organizations get by with that. We're, t- we're talking about how do you become exceptional? How do you navigate turbulence and, and, and not be like everybody else and just take, you know, the downfall when the market turns down? Or how do you capture the up without getting to chaos? Right. How do you grow without gracefully without it becoming chaotic? It's, you've got to have great leadership and the right people in all the right seats. And leaders is where you start, right? You, if you don't have a strong chain of command, your ability to get the right people in the right seats and then to manage them effectively is going to be compromised. So um, when, you know, you ask the question of, you know, what does it take to build a, a team full of the right people? Uh, you know, you get very, very clear on what is great leadership. And that gets factored into the, the you know, your assessment of the who's that you have leading. And again, we apply that through the talent matrix just like we would an engineering role or, uh, you know, an administrative role or any other frontline role that's its own talent matrix is what is this person like as a leader? Do they fit the role? Uh, And I guess what's very interesting when you talk about there, and I don't know, that's how I'm getting as well, is that you have your strategy, you have your vision, you have your, your beliefs and values, and you make sure that all that is connected around the roles to make sure they deliver up to those because that's in principle the direction the company wants to go and therefore the behavior you want to see in these roles you start to become very very clear on that which often is missed in strategy work is that what kind of behavior do we need to see then from our people to make that happen not not the goals but what kind of behavior do we need to achieve the goals yeah how do you, how do you get an organization that will uh, achieve without this idea again of of change management. Remember the the um, good to great companies invested no time in change management. And that is such a mind bender for most people to go, how on earth did they get things done? Now, and they, you know, they faced as much adversity as anybody else did. It's just how they, the, the fact that they went to the trouble to have the right people and the right people are not only self-motivated, they are willing to put the greater interest, whatever that mission is, over a parochial, you know, a departmental interest, right? They're sort of the definition of the people that will invest to get to collective success. And that's why you can get this kind of organization that is very, very closely aligned, but loosely coupled. It doesn't need tight management. It's only possible with the right people. And uh, like I said, this, this talent matrix allows us to one, begin the idea of assessing our people, and then we introduce it as a routine 
where it is looked at roll by roll three to four times a year. And this is where we bring managers together to share their insights on the people that are in specific roles. We call this a, a live session where there's discussion amongst managers who either have people in that role or are familiar with that role. This is all performance and potential discussions. And the great part about this is that by doing this routine, right, you finally get a shared understanding of what performance and potential and talent looks like, where most organizations, every manager is managing in a silo, right? They're managing uh, just on their own with their own perspectives. And this idea of bringing folks together, you know, starts to generate a calibration around, you know, how do we manage performance? How do we select the right people? And you get consistency and clarity. And that's what people want. Most people want the idea to go, man, I wish we were just consistent on how we manage performance and we knew what the standards were. And it comes out of this. The, the other thing that happens when we go through this routine is you, the idea of being able to be very objective and professional about making these sort of sharing these insights about people, you're getting good at having difficult conversations and feedback and doing it in a professional, productive way. You're building trust across your management team that spills out of that room into, into the other work they do. So feedback becomes normal. We get calibrated on what, what we think of performance and potential. And we have high levels of trust and managers now become better at their jobs because they're kind of a mutual support group, right? They kind of hold each other accountable and each of them are going to have some of the same issues to deal with in giving somebody feedback. And when they do that as a group, they get better at it. It's like training like a team, right? And this is a, Michael, this is one of the things that I've uh, uh, emphasized with a lot of leaders lately is we use sports analogies all the time. And when you watch elite athletes, right, they spend hours training on fundamentals. They watch film. They, you know, they, they look at their performances and they break them down. They get coaching, right? They spend this massive amount of effort and then they compete in a very small portion of their time. Of course, they, they scrimmage and do things like that. But there's so much in the work that they do to become excellent. But what do we do with managers? We expect them to roll the ball out there every day without any kind of training, without any kind of development, without practicing, without working on fundamentals. And we wonder why we don't have exceptional leadership teams. It's kind of crazy. Now, again, not that, not that the proportion of time would flip to what an, you know, an elite athlete has, but my Lord, the fact that we literally invest so little in leadership for the most part in that kind of training and development, you know, that's something that we have to change if we really want to have a great organization. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well, because uh, especially we just gone through with the pandemic, some very turbulent time. And there was, you know, everybody threw everything out of uh, they had in their hands and just focusing on getting the ship sailing. And I feel a bit we've been in that situation. And actually, it's really about what you say now as well, actually, just look up and make sure you're actually training the fundamentals as we go into potentially even more on uncertainty. What, what is in your view and the, the, the leaders you work with, how are they seeing the, the future and, and the uncertainty that come ahead? Because I guess that's why they come to you as well. They, they want to navigate that better. Yeah, they, I, I think for the most part, 
And you mentioned that the pandemic has created, you know, sort of this higher pressure, more volatile environment where leaders really uh, are, are now having more and more questions about how do I how do I get control in an environment that's sort of out of control? And they looking for answers again, they go, these principles uh, can can they offer me an, an answer? And uh, again, the idea that the the potential of an organization is defined by the, the the caliber of your talent and your ability to get the full potential out, that is a leadership function. And so that's what they come looking for. How do I do that and get the the you know the support the growth that I need? How do I get that and not have the organization be so difficult to manage because it's stressful on the leader? And so you know, we really begin by stepping back and, and allowing them to step out of that fray and focus on, you know, getting clear on what the brutal facts are. Again, you've got to look at the, the, the talent that you have, and that's with your leadership team. And do you have the, what's the percentage of the right people in the right seats? And we begin to work by assessing, you know, how strong are we in those areas? How strong are we leading in line with level five? How, how, uh, strong as our fit in all of our key roles and how well can this organization respond to the difficulties as we go. If we anchor down in these buildup areas, we have a chance to see through almost anything. When you have an organization that doesn't have a high level and you're, you're managing very traditionally, all that pressure and all the ability to respond to all the difficulties you're going to face falls on the leader. And that's just impossible for anybody to do effectively. So... So, Dave, if you wanted to um, give like an advice to, to leaders out there, they, they already believe that they need to go and do this work. They, they are on the journey. They may be flatlined a bit, as I told you earlier, that I found myself sometimes in, in trying to practice good to great. You flatline at some points and you think, I can't, how do I actually get the full potential out of that? What, what would you, what would your advice be to, to these people? Because they, they know they need to do something. There's a, this storm around the corner and I need to do something. I need to, to shake up things for the better. Yeah, I would say, you know, to, to if uh, one, I think you have to go back to, you know, reading the book and understanding the principles but in a very practiced way. This is, this is the difference between, and I run into a lot of leaders who are voracious readers. They will read. They're constantly telling me about the new book that they're reading. And it's really, really different when we get into a coaching situation and we're forcing the individual to not just uh, intellectually grasp the concepts, but to boil them back down to practice. I mean, that's definitely one of the advantages if, if you can go down a coaching path where there's this forced, I've now got to put into play this idea of assessing where I'm at with my leadership, because the leader, you're the, you're the key to everything, right? The, the, the quality of your culture, the quality of your result is a reflection of the quality of your leadership. And if you want to master these principles, you're going to have to first begin with assessing yourself and where do you need to fill those gaps and so you got to go back to it with a, a lens and, and reflect on throughout your practice. Where am I most aligned with things like having the right people in the right seats? Am I dodging particularly difficult conversations? Right. You've got to 
really look for where are the uh, opportunities where you can improve and put the, you know, put new principles into practice and then measure yourself. It's sort of this full loop to go, I'm going to take this into practice. Again, that that is why so many people now come to me is that coaching is so vital to being able to pull that off, right? It forces you to step out of the fray and to have a clear conversation, to look at your game film and go, how did I handle this situation? Where should I focus first? And then what does it mean to bring that principle into reality? And then there's an accountability. You know, I'm dealing, I deal with a lot of leaders that they have that situation we described earlier where one of the biggest problems they have is this high producer that's toxic. And, you know, in, in our discussions, uh, I don't let them off the hook. That's, that's a mandate that you, they're, they're, that's not optional to kick that can down the road. You've got to take that on. And that's where it really becomes, you know, oh, it's a nice read and it's, uh, you know, very interesting. I like the principles. Now, when you have to take action in a very difficult and important way, uh, that's when you're getting it into practice. Um, some people can do that development on their own, you know, and, I, and again, I, I, I think having a, a coach helps in so many ways because it allows you to step out. And, you know, leaders, especially at the top, most have a hard time, you know, it's they've arrived. It's They have a hard time saying there's gaps in my ability, my understanding in how to do these things. And again, somebody that's sort of a, an advocate on the outside that can help you do that. It's a safe space to do that allows you the freedom to become a student and to become a better leader and to build a better organization. And I think that's really, really key. However you can accomplish that, right? Whether you're able to do that on your own and self-develop, some of us had to do that over time. Uh, but uh, but getting some, some coaching of some kind can definitely help you. So I hope that makes sense. That makes brilliant sense. Uh, find, finding out where your gaps are, both as an organization, but also more important, the individual, and then you know go back actually and either find help through people like yourself or uh, a group, or actually start practicing you know these things in in real life because you don't know what works before you put it into play. And also accept that the answer is not always a system. It's almost like a, there's a bit of a trial and error here as well when it comes to, to leadership. And often I think we expect when we read something in book, it's going to work exactly the same way in our organization. And we didn't know what context that story came out of. It can be a good to great company. It could be a... Uh, a GA electric where you hear about Jack Wells success, but your circumstances are probably different. So you need to find your own unique way. I always say, well, is there any, is there like one question you wish Dave I've asked you around, you know, talent and what we've been around here, uh, exploring about, you know, performance potential, the question about who again, is there anything you wish I've asked you specifically? Yeah, I was, uh, I would say it's very similar to the question that Collins got asked, you know, or asked that led to good to great. You know, his question was, can a good co company become great? And if so, how? And um, and we've talked a little bit about this during the, the podcast, Michael. But Mike, the question that I would uh, think is in, important to ask is, can a good leader become great? And if so, how? And it really is about being able to 
again, go back to what, you know, identify a leadership model that you, uh, that really strikes a chord with you. And of course, it, you and I, we talk about the level five leadership model, and that's what I practice. But if it's not that, then find something that really does connect with you as the kind of leader that you want to become. And then start that journey of putting, investing a lot of effort into getting clear and humble on where you're at. What are the gaps? Um, again, this idea of going back and reading good to great um, with the purpose and intention of putting it into practice, it is so much more rigorous uh, and challenging than just reading it several times and just intellectually grasping them. It's a matter of now going, these are the situations where I need to be better at leading with questions. Okay, I'm going to diagram these. These are the certain meetings or the events or the results that I want to get through leading with more questions. Right? I want to get more of the truth out on the stage or I want to get this problem solved by leading with questions and put it into play and then see how well you do it and keep that cycle going. That's the only way you can ever be excel at something is to be intentional, deliberate in your practice, study, review, and then repeat the cycle until you get mastery. Um, you know, again, uh, the idea that ha having someone help you as a coach uh, can speed that process up is certainly helpful. Again, regardless of what le le leadership model you decide to pursue, I'm a real big advocate in, in having that kind of intention around building leaders, right? Again, we've got to get to the point where getting the right people in the right seats begins with building great leaders down the food chain. And the best way to do that is to start with yourself. When the, the top leader invests that way and humbles themselves to get feedback and to get better, then everybody else goes, well, it's not just about fixing me. You know, he or she was willing to start the process and become a better leader themselves. No better way than to lead by example. And, that, and that's where I, why I start with people at the top of, uh, of whatever organization wants to go down this path. They have to look in the mirror and start the process. So it, it's not just about fixing everybody else. So that was a, that was a great question actually, because it's a, it's such a complex one as well. Um, but again, I love what you said. Go, go and, and find your part in the book. And I think level five probably is a very good place to start right now um, because I was just looking at it the other day. And every time you look at that model, you get something new out of it. And you actually start to think about the people you work with and start to place them. Even if they don't have a leadership position, where are they there? And why are they ended there? And how can we move them out of that? Because that will be your first intention. How do we move them up the chain? Uh, to level five. So, so where where can people go and uh, find out more about you and uh, connect with you, Dave? If they thought that was quite interesting, I want to definitely want to know more about what what Dave is up to. You put a lot of great stuff out on LinkedIn. I know. Yeah, LinkedIn is really my primary uh, you know site where I share a lot of content, uh, both on my personal page and my business page. My business page is lead different. And um, I'm also the owner of the Good to Great discussion group where we share content that is aimed at, you know, helping everybody who's read and connected with any of Colin's work, really. How do we bring it into practice? And I, I share a lot of content that is, you know, very, very specific in the 
black boxes that we open. You'll see a lot on this talent matrix on there. You'll see a lot on the right versus tight management of the right people because again, it's full cycle. And so it, LinkedIn is definitely the right place to find me. Of course, uh, you know, if they're, they're fans of your podcast, you and I are very well connected. So that's another way for sure. Good, good. Thank you so much, Dave, for for coming back and talking about the uh, you know the book. I love and I know uh, a lot of the, the people that's tuning in is also a big fan of the book. Uh, good to great, but also Jim Collins' work and actually how to put that into practice when it comes to to talent. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much, Dave, for your deep dive into the talent matrix and for sharing your learnings, working with CEOs, building great organizations. Now ask yourself, what can we do to boost our talent pipeline? And if you want to learn more about Dave and his work, tune in to episode number 141 with Dave Oakley on going from good to great. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. A massive thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. I really appreciate that you are spending your time and listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. It all helps. Which all can be done via the website, hospitalitymavericks.com. And if you have any feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, via hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkther, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick.